0: So I had uh, my first midlife crisis at the ripe old age of 29. Um, It was not one of those cool midlife crises, though, where you get like a convertible and a golf club membership. It's more of one of those crises where you cry a lot and are broke. Um, So that was fun. Um, I don't know if any of you all have ever had one of those. but I grew up in Bradenton, which is a small town here in Florida. And kind of my whole view of what I was going to do in life uh, was I was going to graduate high school. I was going to go to college. I was going to buy a suit at some point and get like a job where you go to work, and you like do a business thing, and you make money, and you serve in Kiwanis. That was sort of like my scope of like what life was going to be. It sounded pretty good, right? I'm sure along the way there'd be a family and all these things. But like the most that I could focus on as, in that time of kind of going was like, I'm going to come back and do what the people that I kind of admire around me do. They like. They, they go to work and they do this. And so along the way I go, I go to University of Florida, go Gators, um, have some incredible time there. But then God kind of like... Uh, hits me sideways while I'm there. And I end up finding out that I really, what I really, really enjoy doing and probably I'm supposed to do with my life is to tell uh, high school students about Jesus. You see, earlier in high school, I had found out about Jesus through Young Life. And Young Life is a ministry where adult leaders go on the campuses of high school, build relationships with students, and it's, it's appropriate to get the chance to share the gospel with them. And I know there are some of you who have benefited from that ministry over time or know people who have. And that was my first introduction to Jesus. That's where I got to know Him. And when I went to college, I thought, well, I'll volunteer. This seems like something you do, right? You go serve. So I'm there. I get a chance to go to high school campuses and get to know students and just fall in love with this ministry and, and have a clear vision of this is what God wants me to do with my life. So I do that and I go on staff with them, start working with them and as college ends, I'm like, well, this seems to be the path I'm supposed to go down. So I moved to our camp, Southwind, has a, uh, it's called Southwind Young Life has a camp about an hour away called Southwind. We still take our middle school and high school students there uh, from some of there from time to time and it's still there. I got to work there for a year and while I was there, it became very clear note you're supposed to go move somewhere and do this work in a high school so prayed about it thought we were going to move to Fort Myers along the way they said hey why don't you move to Orlando I thought well nobody lives in Orlando so I guess I'll tell Mickey Mouse about it you know like not knowing anything about Orlando and the big city all I had known was Disney World and I tried to find people that lived here way back when and couldn't find any houses I just found Xanadu and other things and wondered where are people living it's like I drive nobody lives at Chuck E. Cheese but so they said, no, no, you're going to go to Lake Mary. I'm like, what's a Lake Mary? But I'll go there. That sounds great. And so moved here and had this incredible season of ministry for eight years, had a chance to go to the high school and just hundreds of kids came to Christ. It was amazing. I met some of my best friends, just the most enriching time. Like, and it was just so clear, this is what you're supposed to do forever until all of a sudden it wasn't. I still remember the trip. Uh, Windy Gap is a camp that's up in North Carolina, and it's my favorite place on earth. Year after year, I'd take kids to Windy Gap and be there for different things, and I would sit by the same stream every June or July, and every year I'd sit there and kind of recount God's goodness and provision in my life. And I mean, it was a physical place, and some of you have those yard markers. Chad, a while back, did a sermon about Ebenezer stones and having these places where we actually set in the ground kind of remembering what God has done, and that was my place. And I remember sitting there that year thinking this is the last time I'm ever gonna be here. This is the last time I'm ever gonna bring kids here. It was so clear that this season was ending, this ministry was ending, Uh, there was going to be leaving staff, like things just were not going well, the fundraising was tanking, my my ministry wasn't going well, I was in the dumps, had a bad breakup, just nothing was going well, and it was just clear that there was a death of a season, that something was ending, and I had no idea how to navigate this because this is what I thought I was going to do forever, right, this is the only thing I had known, and now it's coming to an end. Fortunately, I I had some very gracious folks that I worked with and for, and they said, hey, have you ever thought about career counseling? And I'd never heard of this before, and some of you may have been hearing that for the first time. You're writing down career counseling. That's a great idea. Um, And so I remember filling out all this paperwork, and I thought, oh, I'm going to go to this office. They're going to give me like three jobs I should go do, and maybe even give me a job. That would be great, right? And I'll know what to do as I grow up. So I remember getting to this guy's office. They flew me out to Colorado, and I sit there, and um, I'm just waiting for the printout, like, oh, here you go. You're supposed to go here and do this thing. And the guy looks at me and he says, "Hey, what do you like to do for fun?" Well, that's an odd first question for a job counseling, but okay. Um, and I was like, "I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't really, I don't, I don't really, I don't have time for that, right? Or I don't really do much." He's like, "No, no, no. Like when you have free time, uh, what do you like to do for fun?" I'm like, "I, uh, I don't know." And he's like, okay, when you're not depressed, what do you like to do for fun? I'm like, thank you. That's, this is a fun start. Um, So he said, before we can even start talking about what's next, you need to go down to that park. You can see it out the window and just go write a list of things you used to like to do, like before this depression, this season of life. And I remember just this whole season, it just felt like death. And I'd been through death and I know it lost and in grief and felt like, and this is exactly the same feeling. And In my honesty, when I could slow down enough to to think about it, I I was disappointed. I was disappointed in myself. I felt like a failure. Um, I remember thinking of the people that had quit before me and thinking, well, they couldn't hack it. Now I'm that guy that can't hack it. Um, I I was disappointed that this is what it was leading to because I thought this was it. Like it was so clear. This is the one thing you're supposed to do. This is the one thing you're good at. And all of a sudden it's not there. And and in my deepest honesty, when I could really be honest, I, I was disappointed in God. Because why would you give me this thing that was so beautiful and so great and so perfect and seemed to use every bit of my gifts? Why would you give me this vision? Why would you give me this hope? Why would you give me all of this and then take it away? What is that? So are you disappointed with God? Um, Is life not going the way that you thought it would? Um, If if you're honest, has Jesus let you down? And I know this sounds more like the beginning of a symbolic commercial. You're waiting for like all the side effects now, but it's not. This is the beginning of a sermon. You're welcome. Um, but this is a tough topic. I, I mean, and it's one I really, I, I struggle to tackle because I feel like lately I've been with a lot of people, both friends, uh, people here, uh, just around, and, and people just don't know what to do with their disappointment with God. They're going through seasons where things are not working right. And I don't really feel like I know exactly what they should do or say in those moments because I don't want to just say that God is good because though that's not true, it's not always the most helpful thing to hear, right? Like I remember being in seasons where things weren't going well and someone just goes like, oh, just remember, God's in control. Like, thanks. That's not what I needed, right? Like, though it is true, it was not helpful sometimes in those moments. So you don't want to be trite because in the, the statement of God is good, like my dentist is good, but I don't like going to the dentist. So like that doesn't want to equate the two of them together. So what do you do with your disappointment with God? Today, we're going to look at a conversation with Jesus by someone who's disappointed with him, who isn't experiencing Jesus like he thought he would. A conversation between Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptist, while John was in prison awaiting execution. So today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. You're welcome to follow along in your Bibles, on your phones. It's also on the back of your bulletins if you'd like to follow along. Um, Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. So it says, when John, who was in prison... Before we unpack this conversation, let's talk for a minute about who John was. John the Baptist had been the sensation of the nation. Huge crowds had come out to see him. He's out baptizing, and just the whole countryside were coming out to be a part of this ministry he had. And he had risen to a place of great popular power among the people of Israel. He boldly spoke out against the corruption in government, so boldly that King Herod had thrown him in the jail, and now his life was hanging by a thread. And John was a huge supporter of Jesus. At one point, he actually encouraged his disciples to leave and to follow Jesus. He was all in. He was on the front lines of all of this. Jesus, John had also been at the baptism of Jesus. He actually got to baptize Jesus. I think about how amazing that must have been. And as he was doing that, the sky opened and he saw God and he heard him declare, This is my son of whom I am well pleased. Again, John was on the front row of this. He had seen the full picture of God's glory. But even now, John seems to be identi- doubting the identity of Jesus. And you don't have to use much imagination to hear the disheartened tone in the question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Think about it. Bef- besides a few of his loyal disciples that are still around that he was able to send out to ask this question, all the crowds had gone to Jesus. John was irrelevant and forgotten. He's alone in jail and which is what John wanted. At least maybe that's what he thought he wanted at one point. He had said, I must decrease and he must increase. John had such a clear picture of him. And one of my favorite times of being taught was going through the book of John. And just the very beginning, John is so clear of who he is. He says, I'm not even worthy to touch the sandals of the one who's to come. He is fully clear on who he is, his ministry, of everything he's supposed to do. Yet even now he finds himself in a place that maybe he thought he'd never be. You know, it's easier to say things like, hey, why don't you go follow that other guy when things are going really well, right? When the crowds are around. But maybe there's a moment here as he's sitting there alone on the brink of death. He's had some questions like, maybe I shouldn't have sent everybody away. And when things are bad, when things are kind of down and to the left, faith can get hard. John was a bold prophet of God, but he was also a human. He was just like you and I. He was a bold prophet. He got to share these things. He had this incredible thing. But at the end of the days, he was still a human who was in prison awaiting his death. And it seems that he struggled like we all struggle. I'm sure that there's part of John's, who, when he's sitting in prison thinking, um, if, if you're the Messiah, if you're the one and I served you, why is my life such a wreck? How could it come to this? If you're this great God, why are you letting such bad things happen to like a good person like me? How can I believe in you when life is going like this? Have you ever asked that same question? I feel like I've done the right things. How could things be going this way? And not only are things that are happening to John that don't seem fair, um, from what he hears, what he's getting the information about, it seems that Jesus is living it up. The text tells us that John sent his disciples, asked Jesus if he was the one, when he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. So what things did he heard about? What were the things that he had heard stories about? Had he heard about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, of Jesus walking towards the poor, of Jesus working with people he never thought he would? Was he hearing that Jesus wasn't upending the government, that he was actually coming to the meek and powerless? Did he hear about miracles he was doing, the people that were on the outsides of things? Or did he hear that Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes, people that were living blatantly sinful lives? That would have made no sense to John. That wouldn't have fit any of his frame of reference. In fact, at one time, John's disciples had come to Jesus to ask him why he and his disciples didn't fast like John does, and also like the Pharisees do. John lived in a structure where there were laws and order, and he had a very clear picture of the Messiah who was to come, and just didn't seem maybe like who he thought was going to be there. Was John offended that Jesus had the reputation of a glutton and a drunkard while John is in prison, suffering? Jesus would say a few verses later in verses 18 and 19, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man, as he referred to himself, came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Or maybe John sent his disciples to ask the question because Jesus wasn't acting like he thought he would. When John was hearing about the works of Jesus, maybe it didn't match what he had been proclaiming about this Messiah that was to come. It didn't appear that Jesus had come with vengeance and judgment. As John heard about the gracious words that came from Jesus' mouth and the miracles of mercy he performed, it didn't harmonize with the way in which he had talked about the Messiah. John spoke of the one who had come to punish and destroy. He would say, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And later on he said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, some pretty stark imagery. That was the vision and image that John had of who the Messiah would be. And maybe it was a little bit of all of it. Jesus was hanging out with people that John didn't expect, and he wasn't bringing about the justice that John proclaimed. However it happened, John was disappointed, and John seemed disappointed with Jesus. So what do you do when you're disappointed with Jesus? Usually when I'm talking to someone, about disappointment with God, who's frustrated about life, uh, when we start talking about it, usually the answers are all about provision. That I'm not as happy as I thought I would be. My job isn't going the way I thought it would. My kids aren't who I thought they would be. My relationship isn't the way that I'd hoped it would. Uh, my finances aren't in the order that I thought they would. These things around us, I thought I would be in a different place. I thought my life might be more fulfilling by now. So much of it seems to be around the situations and the provision of life. So, what are you expecting from Jesus right now? Or maybe you've stopped expecting because your past expectations of Jesus are still unmet. Or maybe what I find to be some of the most dangerous territory, and when I, red flies go up, but often slowly for me, is when you get into that place where you just don't expect anything. Because if you expect something, you might be disappointed. And if you expect too much and it doesn't happen you this disappointed. but maybe you just come to a place where it's like, I'm just not going to even dream anymore. I'm just done. I'm just going to kind of get up and just kind of walk through the flatness of life because then I can't be hurt. You just sort of shut down emotionally because disappointment can't hurt me, but I also can't get too excited and you sort of live in that safe middle ground where nothing is really happening. Pain and suffering often tempt us to doubt what we once believed to be true. And so why is that? I think it's because we what we believe, pointed to a different outcome than the one that we are experiencing. And John, in this moment where we find him in prison, as he's asking this question, is experiencing a very different outcome than he expected. So what does John do? This is when it becomes pretty interesting, I think, in this story, in such a short piece. John does something, I think, pretty unexpected because, again, most of us start with provision, most of us start asking questions around what's going on or trying to think through how to fix things. But John asks Jesus a question. And I think we can learn from this that this is a very important first step for all of us when we find ourselves disappointed with God. To ask him to not just stew on it or sit on it or not do anything about it, but to ask him. John went straight to him and flat out asked, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another I found some of the greatest freedom in my life when I started reading the Psalms and praying the Psalms and learning that the Psalms were these prayers with very honest language about doubts and disappointment of a person in conversation with God and willing to say some pretty hard things in conversation. And John seems to be doing the same things. Maybe he had read these same songs he probably had and realized that there was some freedom in asking that, realized that there was some permission to ask him hard questions. And so John says, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? And this question is an interesting one. And again, maybe not the most natural one. At least it's not the question that most people would think to ask or oftentimes that I would first ask. Because John has a problem. He actually has a pretty huge problem. He's in prison. He's on the brink of death. His life is on the line. It's hanging by a thread. Yet when he goes to Jesus, he says nothing about his problem at all. He doesn't bring it up. He does not say, if you're the one, get me out of here. Instead, he just simply asks, are you the one? This is reminiscent of the thief on the cross who is next to Jesus as Jesus is hanging there. Not the one who asked Jesus to remember him in the kingdom to come, but the other one. uh, The one who says, if you're the one, get us out of here. You see the difference between how the one approached him on the cross versus how John comes to him. The thief is basically saying, prove you're the one by solving my problem. And John just simply asks, are you the one? Without any conditions around it. I think most of us begin our questioning of Jesus with a profoundly problem-centered approach. We want to know whether Jesus is going to give us what we want. Maybe someone says, well, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. I'd like to know whether it's true, but I'm struggling because I want to be successful in business, and I don't know whether I'm going to be able to make it. Will Jesus help me get my MBA? Or I'm struggling because I'm unhappy in my marriage, and I'm really thinking about divorce. Will Jesus support my decision? Or I have a problem with self-esteem. I have a problem with guilt. I've been in a lot of unhealthy relationships. If I come to Jesus, will He make me feel good about myself? A person might say, I'm estranged from my kids. If I come to Jesus, will it fix my relationship with them? Or just simply, if I come to Jesus, will my circumstances get better? And those questions are all fine to ask, but they're all the wrong first question. The thief says, I want to know what you're going to do about my life before I give myself to you. And John the Baptist just says, are you the one? When we ask the wrong first question, we are assuming we already know what we need and how our life should go. But how in the world can we assume what we, that we know, uh, sorry, let me start that again. How in the world can we assume we know who we are and what we need before we know him? The one who created us, the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, the one who knew us before time, the one who was a design for our life, the one who knows our name before we're even, it, even given it. How can we know who we are and what we're built for before we know the one who designed us? John, in his suffering and doubting, doesn't say, I know I need to be out of prison. Therefore, are you the one? Get me out of here. Instead, he says, if I'm on my own, of course I need to get out of prison. That's the only way I can be happy. But if you're truly the one, whatever you ask of me will be a tiny thing compared to what you'll give me. Whatever sacrifice you ask of me will be nothing compared to the glory that'll be mine if you are indeed the one. If you're the one, Whatever you decide is right for me must be right for me, even if it doesn't feel right to me. Either you have a God who is defined by your circumstances or a God who defines your circumstances. And I'll say that again because I think this is a lot where it hinges. Either you have a God who is defined by your circumstances or a God who defines your circumstances. Listen, if Jesus is who he says he is, he knows who you are more than you know who you are and what you need in order to be what he had in mind when he thought you up. And if he's not who he says he is, he can't help you a bit. You're on your own. So it makes no sense to say, if you are who you say you are, will you let me live a life or live my life the way I know I should live it? That makes no sense at all. If he is the one, he has to know best. The reason that you can be searching for Jesus and not receiving any answers is because if you think about it, the thief's question is not really a question at all. It's actually an order you've been searching for Jesus and don't feel like you've heard an answer, have you been asking a question or just giving him an order? Look, when you come to Jesus with conditions, when you come and say, well, I'd be interested in believing you if you would do this thing for me, what you really mean is, I don't want to know if you want something different from me than what I want for me. I only want you on my terms. The reason he's not giving you an answer may be because you're not asking a question. If you come with questions you don't really know or want to know who he is, you're not open. John's question shows us that we have to start by saying, are you the one? And that's it, no conditions, right there, just a simple question, are you the one? And it's where everything starts. It's what it all hinges on, because before I know that, I can't know anything else. Are you the one? If you can answer that first question then you have a God who isn't defined by your circumstances, but a God who defines your circumstances. And once you know that, once you can be assured of that, it'll change your perspective on everything. It'll change my perspective on prison, change my perspective on marriage, change my perspective on business, on relationships. It'll change everything. My middle daughter, Andy... Wears cute little pink glasses. I know many of you have seen them. Lots of people like her glasses, but part of wearing glasses, and those of you who wear those or contacts, you know over time you have to have your prescription updated. Things change over time and you can't see as clearly as you used to see. And I found that imagery of, of, of lenses, of having new perspective to be very helpful in a lot of the conversations I've had not only with other people, but even in my own life, because oftentimes. We view life through the lenses of our situations, our circumstances, and they become so clouded, they become so distorted, because though the feelings we have are real, though the circumstances we exist in are real, they're not always the truest pieces about ourselves. The feelings that we have, the things that we ask are not always the truest. So having these new lenses can help us see the world in a different way. And in many ways, what he's saying, if we can answer the question of, are you the one, it puts on these new lenses, a new perspective that God is in control of the circumstances. And no longer are the circumstances controlled and dictated about who God is. Now let me take a moment and say this, though. Does Jesus want you healed? Does he want you to be in relationships that encourage you and build you up? Does he want you to have a dad who doesn't leave? Does he want you to be in great relationship with your kids? Does he want your life to go well? Yes. And those are all part of his perfect design. Sickness and broken relationships and dads who don't leave. We're not what God had in mind when he first thought us up. So if you ask those good questions, the answer is always yes, God wants that for you. But it's the wrong first question. C.S. Lewis once wrote in a letter to a friend who was suffering, suffering is not always sent as a punishment. This is clearly established for believers by the book of Job. It would certainly be most dangerous to assume that any given pain was penal. I believe that all pain is contrary to God's will. Absolutely, not relatively. Relatively. When I am taking a thorn out of a child's finger, the pain is absolutely contrary to my will. If I could have chosen a situation without pain, I would have done so. But I do will the pain caused by the removing of the thorn rather than leaving the thorn where it is. I think God would answer yes to every question about doing away with sickness and pain and brokenness. But again, it's not the right first question. The question, are you the one, moves God from being defined by our circumstances to defining our circumstances. Now, the second thing we learn, John doesn't say, are you the one or should we stop looking? He actually says, are you the one or should we keep looking for another? Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? The implication is that John knows that if Jesus is not the one, if we reject Jesus, we won't be able to stop looking because we're all looking for the one. Maybe it's in our portfolio or in our career, in our bank account. Maybe it's in a person Maybe it's in a girlfriend or a husband or a child or a spouse. Maybe it's just a dream of what could one day be. But we're all human. We've been designed as dependent creatures who need something to worship. And if you reject Jesus as the one, you're going to have to turn something else into one. We all need an object of our worship, and something else will go into that slot. Part of the reason that we've taken this whole year to focus on Jesus is because we have to come to that answer. We have to wrestle with that question. So as we've spent this time with Jesus, what have you seen? Have you found a one that's better than him? As forgiving, as wonderful, as tender, as powerful and as humble, as willing to be patient with you? I think Jesus is very patient with us because he knows that he is offensive to us. In verse 6, Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on my account. Another way to translate it, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus says in response to John's question, you will know who I am when you are offended by me. See, Jesus knows that only people who have found the blessedness of him are the ones who have wrestled with his offensiveness. They have felt it. Jesus knows he's an offense to us. I remember the first time hearing or thinking about Jesus being offensive, and it seems so contrary, because Jesus is so cool, right? He has lands over his shoulder, like he's always hanging out with kids. He, like, kicks soccer balls in a lot of pictures. Like, Jesus seems so chill and so awesome and so sweet. Yet also, like, every time he's nice to people, people keep wanting to kill him. There's something going on behind all of it. How could this one who seemed to be all about peace, about bringing it together, be so offensive, so disruptive to the authorities that were around what makes him so offensive to those i think it's because he came primarily not as an example but as a savior see examples don't offend us we have examples all over the place our heroes whether they're in sports or in the media we have people that we look up to they inspire us they make us want to be better we read the stories we see them and they push us on but saviors offend us The Apostle Paul says, if Jesus Christ had come in power and said, I'm going to save you through an example, here's the way you should live, we wouldn't have been offended. But Paul says that the cross is an offense to us. So why is that? The cross says you are so lost and you are so helpless that only the death of the Son of God will save you. And he's going to take what you deserve. And you deserve death and separation from God. I mean, I mess up. I mean, I mess up from time to time, and I think we would all admit to that. I think we would all admit that we're broken, that we do things wrong, but are we really that bad? Are we so bad that someone had to go to a cross to take it all? Are we really that broken? But unless you see yourself as that bad, unless you see yourself as that broken and that separated, you won't know the blessedness that comes from Jesus, from a Savior. Jesus actually seems to be glad that John is offended by him, because that means John is getting it. John is getting that the one is not an example, but a savior. But John already knew this. At least in his head, maybe he hadn't remembered it, or maybe over time that he'd gone away. But as Jesus was coming to him to be baptized, John proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew the one was coming to save and not just to teach. But many of us, like John, know that too. But how easy it is to forget and reduce Jesus to being an example, or maybe just the helper along the way. Once the newness of our salvation and the recognition of our separation wears off, Jesus over time can become just our example, our co-pilot, the one who is there to just to help. Jesus as an example is an inoffensive Christ. But blessed are those who are offended by Christ and stay. Jesus as Savior is offensive because that means we're saved by grace alone. Martin Luther once said, God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick. Gives sight only to the blind. restores life only to the dead. Sanctifies only the sinners. Gives wisdom only to the unwise. In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those who are not in grace. Blessed are those who are offended by Christ and stay. One of the things I love about Jesus is he isn't offended if we're struggling with his offensiveness, if we're struggling with our disappointments in him. Right after this conversation with John's disciples, Jesus publicly praises John. He calls him a prophet whose place in life has not been surpassed by any human being. John's struggle with doubt and disappointment didn't change Jesus' view of him one bit. And it won't change his view of you either. Uh, My time when I was in Colorado when I was taking that time with a career counselor and later some classes there, it, it didn't fix it all. I didn't walk away with my top three job choices. It didn't fix everything in the moment. But something much more profound happened than finding out what the next job was supposed to be or or getting a list of things that I needed to do because that was what I wanted. Jesus, if you're who you say you are, you will give me my top three job choices, right? That's not what happened. But something much more profound happened. I realized through some time there and some time in class and some time away that God had never left me. He had never left me in the midst of losing this dream. He had never left me in the change of direction of my life. He hadn't left me in the midst of a breakup. He hadn't left me when people in my life that I love had died. He hadn't left me when I was failing. He hadn't left me when I strayed. He hadn't left me when I messed up. In fact, he was there all the time. And maybe, just maybe in those lower moments, he seemed to be even more of the God who was supposed to be God than even at the peaks of those times. It was interesting to draw a chart of my life and the kind of the ups and downs of life and to kind of draw a straight line of God. And at times when things are going well and you're so close to God, there's not much separation between us and Him. Yet when I was looking at these times when things were so hard, God was so much bigger. And in retrospect, it's hard to see in the moment, but as I was able to look back and to see where God was in those moments of wrestling and doubt and disappointment to see that He was God in power, that he had a better plan, that he knew what was going on, that he was the one controlling circumstances, and my circumstances were not dictating God. It was the greatest gift, I think, that I was ever given, to be able to walk through and lose one of this great season, but to have confidence of who God is, and to let him be the lens of which to view life through. And my disappointment didn't send him away at one bit as I was able to have a healthy view of who he is, to put on a new lens and perspective of who he is, to realize that he loved me just as much as ever. And he actually welcomed those questions that he was big enough to handle it. You see, Jesus isn't offended if you're struggling with his offensiveness. But here's my strong encouragement. If you're struggling with disappointment, if you're struggling with it, is to stay. Don't go. Stay and ask him and say, are you the one or should I keep looking for another? As we get close to the end of this series on conversations with Jesus in the midst of this year that we're spending with him, the question each and every one of us has to come to grips with at some point that we have to ask, that we have to really come to an answer is, are you the one or should I keep looking for another? Because if he is not the one, you will keep looking. We need an object of our desire and our affection of our worship. And it's a question it all hinges on. And Jesus isn't afraid of the question. In fact, he, he welcomes it. He continues to praise John even in the midst of it. He's big enough and patient enough and loving enough to handle it. As we've said around here before, doubts aren't toxic to faith. Silence is. And I think it's the same with disappointments. So don't be silent. Ask the question. In fact, yell the question if you have to and let him answer. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are God that you are powerful enough and wise enough, loving enough, patient enough, big enough that you can handle every question we have and that it doesn't change you one bit. That no matter how many times we let our circumstances try to dictate who you are, you are still God. And when we can answer the question and when we come with you and as we get clarity on whether you're the one that can change everything in our lives. God, when we allow you to be who you are as we see you most clearly for who you are, truly are and not just wrapped in a box or put in a way that we want to be able to handle and manage you but allow you to actually be God then you have the power to move and the power to set our lives right and to let every circumstance be an opportunity for you to work on our life and we can make it through everything you have created us as people who are dependent on you thank you Thank you that you were wise enough to know that we needed you and that you created a void in us that can only be filled by you. No matter how many times we try to fill it with other things, life only works when it's you there. And as we answer that question, God, but thank you for allowing us to answer it. And I pray that each and every one of us would have the courage to answer it and to come to that answer and to be with you. I pray all of this this morning in your son Jesus' name. Amen.